Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6. We want to read our text from last week again today, verses 1 through 7, verses 1 through 7, and this is what the Word of God says. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. The seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, as we continue to look at this marvelous vision Received by your prophet Isaiah, things almost too wonderful to describe, too wonderful to behold. And yet, Lord, you have revealed these things to us in such a way to instruct our minds, to remind us that you are a holy God and that you require perfect holiness and that no flesh can stand before you. And so, Lord, we pray Teach us through the gospel here in Isaiah what it means to be put right with God, what it means to be declared righteous in the sight of such a holy God, and where our hope lies today. We pray that you help us now, Lord. Give us ears to hear, give us a mind to understand, and give us a heart to to apply and to obey for the praise of your glory. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if last week we talked about the God who nobody wants because of His innate holiness and His transcendent power, majesty, and sovereignty, then today we could be talking about the gospel that nobody wants because this is the gospel of Scripture, the gospel of the holiness of God, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel that takes sinful man and puts them right with a holy God. And exactly how that transpires is completely antithetical to everything that is natural to man. It is, the quite, it is quite opposite to everything that man thinks in himself. You know, our tendency is to justify ourselves. Our tendency is to try to work for our salvation. Our tendency is to try to rationalize our sin. Our tendency is to try to minimize the crisis that we are in. And our tendency is to try to undermine the judgment of God. All of these things 
totally contrary to what Isaiah saw and what is true about the gospel. But there is nothing more important than this. There simply is nothing more important for us today as the church to understand the gospel, to be able to elucidate the gospel, explain the gospel, to understand it and to apply it. You need it for your house. You need it for your children. You need it for your your, your marriage. You need it for your evangelism. You need it for your own life to understand accurately and biblically what is the gospel. So much confusion about that today, isn't there? I mean, the film, American Gospel, was made so that people can understand the gospel. And the majority of those people are Christians that are going to see that film and are going to have their gospel hopefully adjusted, corrected, made a little bit more biblical, more faithful. And so, as you can see, brothers and sisters, even though we live in a time when there are more resources for the Christian church than ever before at our fingertips. I've got Amazon Prime. Now I get my theological books delivered the same day. I praise God for that. Hallelujah. But it just makes us more accountable to whom much is given, much is required. And yet, what are we doing with all the excess and the access and the abundance that we have of biblical resources? We are making a sham out of the gospel. So many people still don't understand what the gospel is. You know, much of what I do at UNT, I say I have a two-fold ministry at UNT. I preach, if you're not saved, I'm going to preach the gospel to you in hopes that you'll get saved. If you say you are saved, then we have like an Apollos ministry in the hopes that you will understand the gospel more accurately. And I tell you what, (laughs) there's a lot of that ministry uh, there. And that's anywhere. You can go to any college campus and start doing that anywhere. You can go to anywhere where people profess Christianity and hear what is the gospel that they believe in. And oftentimes that gospel is less than the biblical gospel. It's amazing, isn't it? This text of Scripture has to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's almost like we've got to ask, what does this text have to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ? I mean, Isaiah is way over there, and we are way over here. <laughs> How do we have anything in common with this ancient prophet And what does he have to teach us regarding the true gospel? And so hopefully that will emerge and develop as we go through with this. Now, there's something amazing about this passage. There's something apocalyptic, something eschatological. There is something phenomenal going on here. I draw your attention to verse 4 because what I'm thinking is that with the filling of the temple with the smoke, that is meant to sort of heighten our sense of anticipation. Something is happening Something is ripening. Something is emerging here. There is something developing. The smoke is kind of, I mentioned last week, it's kind of like only when the priests in the temple and even in the Holy of Holies lit the smoke, burned the offering, lit the incense, and filled the temple with smoke, then finally we'd arrived at at the picture of what that temple represents which is the glory of heaven itself. And so as that is developing, as that is intensifying, it is at that critical juncture when the holiness and the glory and the power of heaven is most on display 
that Isaiah, Isaiah sees himself as most unworthy and most unfit, most unprepared for the glory of heaven. And so, this vision is as much about the cleansing of the prophet as anything. Now, understand just for our hermeneutics here, okay, for our understanding here, is this vision telling us the conversion of Isaiah? No. Isaiah is already converted. The vision is not to give us, how did Isaiah get saved? No, he was already saved when he got the vision, but it, it was as if God was retroactively uh, opening his eyes to what the nature of his salvation was all about. It's almost as if he didn't understand his own salvation enough. He needed to, isn't that the story of our lives, by the way? You get saved, and then you spend a whole lifelong in Christianity understanding what happened to you. <laughs> and then you start f filling in the gaps. You know, a lot of times, first you start out, you're Arminian, you're confused, you're not, that's okay, we have patience, we'll be patient, you know. And then you start figuring out, oh, it wasn't of me, it was none of my doing, I didn't earn it, I didn't deserve it, it's not my power, it's not my goodness, I can't produce it, there's nothing that I did. God is sovereign, God did it, He is gracious, He saved me, He didn't help me, He didn't help me, He saved me. You see, that's a big difference. And so here, Isaiah is getting just that. He's seeing a vision of what it means to be put right before a holy God. And therefore, if earlier on we looked at some of the features of the vision, now we're moving toward the purpose. And Lord willing, next week we'll move towards the results of this vision. But this vision was intended, therefore, to convey the notion that God is just, that man is sinful, and how God provides for our deepest needs from the altar. And so that is all language that Isaiah understands. Not so sure it's language we understand today in the 21st century. What does an ancient altar have to do with me and my relationship with God? Well, it has everything to do, everything to do with that. But if we are talking about the biblical gospel, or what I've entitled my sermon today, Isaiah's gospel vision, then it is, then it is remiss for us to understand how does the gospel work? Where does it begin? What are the components? You know, years ago I invited a well-known pastor to come and preach to us the necessary components of a biblical gospel presentation. Uh, and he didn't preach on that. He preached on something else. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that wasn't what I asked you to preach. It was good what you preached. It was great what you preached, but that's not what I asked you to preach. You know, that's what happens when you ask people to preach. <laughs> Sometimes they just want to do their own thing. But that's kind of like what we're doing here. What are the necessary components of a biblical gospel message? What are those essential aspects of a true gospel call? You know, I ask students all the time, what is the gospel? You know what they tell me? They'll tell me, well, the gospel is the, the Bible. <laughs> That's not the gospel. You know, well, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is, you know, that, that God loves you. <laughs> That's not the gospel, you see? And so on and on and on and on, these answers go. These answers are given for what is the biblical gospel, but that is not at all where the gospel begins. You know where the gospel begins? The gospel begins with one word in verse 5. Ready? Whoa! You begin your gospel like that? What is the gospel? Whoa. <laughs> well, we wouldn't use that language today. But what we say is, what does the woe mean? The woe means, well, whoa, you're in trouble. Right? 
The gospel begins, in other words, with the sin and the misery of sinners who are, in the language of the context here, according to the exegesis, who are profane in the sight of God. That, that's that's going to become really important. But first, it just it's, it's, it's important for us to grasp sin and misery. The great confessions of the Christian faith always locate or always define uh, uh, the sinful condition of man in that way that you, are in, that you are in a state of sin and misery before God. Why do they add the state misery? Because it was their way of trying to sort of crystallize the, cr- the crisis that you are in. This is not a casual conversation. This is a crisis hour. Your life is a crisis. Life is a valley. You must decide. You must repent. You must choose. And some of your Calvinist antennas are going up, 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 up. But if you know Reformed theology well enough, you'll know that that is not incompatible with what I'm preaching today. Jesus pressed the people to repent, to turn. It is God's means of pro- pro- producing repentance in them is to call them to repent. And so the, the, the gospel is a crisis. It, it stresses to us that we are not right with God. Isaiah sees this all together here in verse 5 when he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. And he gives two reasons for this. First, the sin of himself and the people. And, and then sort of to compound things and make it even more penetrating, the righteousness of God. Because he says, well, woe is me, why? Well, because I am a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. And then he gives another coordinating conjunction, for my eyes have seen the king. That is big. Which means, not only am I sinful, but I'm in the presence of the king. And that explains the woe. And he's in this temple vision. And I think Isaiah would have come to understand precisely what Solomon meant when the temple was constructed. And Solomon said in 1 Kings 8, listen to the supplication of your servant and to your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. Hear and forgive. They understood that that realm that there were in in the temple that realm that holy space demanded grace and forgiveness in a sense we could say that what isaiah saw was the gospel of saving grace as the very thing that the people needed more than everything else oh don't forget the backdrop don't forget that this is the year upon which the king uzziah died and king uzziah is synonymous for prosperity He is synonymous with security, safety, prosperity, material goods, military power. He he, he is synonymous with a a golden age in the history of the people, and now he's dead. And now what, what Israel is longing for is not even what they need. They don't need all of that. What they need is even more than that. It's not so much national unity, national security. They need national salvation. That's what they need. But that's not something that they can produce. That's not something that they can do in and of themselves. Now, several things I want to point out here. If you look at verse 5, in terms of this oracle of woe, as it is called, several things emphasize here the terror of the prophet. 
uh, specifically in, in relationship to judgment. It is a woe because certain, something is certain to befall him. Matter of fact, uh, scholars, uh, Keelan Dillich, E.J. Young, and others, what they say is if you analyze the woe articles in Scripture, it's usually that something impending is coming, you see? And so what Isaiah is saying is that something is coming, and it is wrath, it is judgment, because God is holy, and I am sinful. Everyone is under this woe in Adam. Everyone is waiting the impending wrath of God. Notice that his focus here is upon his lips. So I thought, you know, upon first reading this, that's kind of strange, you know. Of all the things you could have said, I have unclean lips. Uh, you know, what about unclean heart, unclean mind, unclean, you know. Unclean lips. Why unclean lips? Well, because he understands that with his lips he cannot make an appeal before God because they are unclean. He is not qualified to appease God to beg God, to ask God, to even talk to God. He is not able to join with the angels in praising God. He is not able to prophesy for God at this point. He is not able to do anything other than to condemn himself with his lips. It's amazing to me. The Bible says on the day of judgment, your own conscience will be the prosecuting attorney at the day of judgment saying, amen, with the judgment of God. He will judge men, Romans chapter two, according to their conscience. In other words, Isaiah knows all too well just how sinful he is, and so he doesn't hesitate to heap condemnation upon himself and notice that God does not disagree with him. It further is compounded by the fact that he indicts the people around him the people also pollute Isaiah's own soul. He is rooted in sin. He comes from sin. He sprung from sin. It also means that he has no human recourse. He cannot go to anybody in Israel at this point. He can't turn to the wise men, the priests, the judges, the honorable men, the sages, the prophets. He can't turn to everyone because in the presence of God, everyone is filthy. Romans chapter 3 we could say, brothers and sisters, that all of this is Pauline theology in visionary form. Romans chapter 3, verse 4, may it never be. Rather, let God be true and every man a liar that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Quoting Psalm 51, verse 4, even as David saw his sin, Isaiah sees his sin and Paul takes both of their sin and says, everyone is under this condemnation because that's what he goes on to say in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Wrapping up chapter two and chapter three, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Finally, being unclean when he says, my lips are unclean, that means for Isaiah, he is ceremonially unclean, which means he is covenantally unclean. Turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2, because this is amazing. Here is a man rooted and grounded in the covenant community. He's part of the covenant community. He lives among the covenant community. He speaks of the com He's going to prophesy to the covenant community, and yet, because of his sin, 
The realization is, is that the people together with the prophet collectively stand in total alienation to the God of the covenant. They are unclean. That's what it means to be unclean. It means you are outside of the boundaries of the covenant community and all the blessings that come with it. We, we, we know a lot about this as Gentiles. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, you remember? This is what sin does. It alienates us from God. Therefore, remember that you, formerly you, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. It's almost as if Isaiah's woe is echoing those exact sentiments. He is alienated. He is separated. He is without God and without hope. And so, he looks at his sin, but he also looks at the righteousness of the king. I want you to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 1 in order to understand this, that Isaiah's crisis of sanctity or purity or sanctification, catharsis, to be cleansed, is rooted in the righteousness of God as much as it is rooted in his own sin. If God is so holy that even His glorified beings cannot but hide their face from His glorious presence, how can Isaiah possibly survive the heavenly vision? By establishing this vision, brothers and sisters, in the royal court, I'll remind you, in the heavenly temple, the vision moves to the justice system of God, as it were. It is in the tribunal of God that Isaiah finds himself. There, God, the Holy One, surrounded by His Elohim creatures. Because the angels are called Elohim, which simply means gods. Not that they, not that they are divine, but by virtue of their proximity, by virtue of their ministry, by virtue of their being created by God, they share, as it were, the divine nature. They are Elohims. And here, something is demanded of Him. Namely, that he be holy, even as his father is holy. If you look at Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, the entire Levitical code is summed up right here. It's almost as if Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, is kind of like the introduction of the whole book of Leviticus, which I know you guys do your devotions out of Leviticus all the time, right? No, it's very neglected in the Christian church. We don't typically read the book of Leviticus because we don't want to get all hung up in all the... A sundry laws because we think they're not important, but they are important. The gospel is in Leviticus just like the gospel is in Isaiah. Just read with me for a second, verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd of the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and that he may be accepted before the Lord. That's critical. That's the heart of it all. That's what Isaiah is confronted with now. How will I be accepted before the Lord? He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him. 
Listen to the language there of substitution. To make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons. The priest shall offer up blood and sprinkle blood all around the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. If you jump down in Leviticus to chapter 11, again, it says, I am the Lord your God, verse 44. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. There you go. That's the whole requirement of the law. Be holy as I am holy. Offer up a sacrifice that you may be acceptable before the Lord. That is the entirety of the crisis of catharsis, cleansing. Heaven, the seraphim, the glory realm into which Isaiah sees himself and into which he entered through this vision, illuminated to him his own sinful alienation, his unworthiness, his unfitness for such a a holy habitation. And it is infinitely compounded by the sight of the king. And two things here. He says he's undone. Why? Because my eyes have seen the king. And then he adds the word, ready? The Lord of hosts. In other words, the Yahweh Sabaot in the Hebrew, which means the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. In other words, this is the language of I see the king. It's his way of saying I see the king, the one who is able to execute his judgment. That's why it's such a threat to see the king, the Lord of hosts, the one who has the power to execute his wrath. But what are the demands of the king? That's like asking, what are the demands of the gospel? The demands of the king is that Isaiah be righteous. And notice that Isaiah does not appeal to the law. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26 says, Cursed is the one who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And Paul picks up on that passage in Galatians chapter 3 and says, Because if you are going to live by the law, you will die by the law. And no flesh can be justified by the law. And therefore, Isaiah understood the law was powerless to save him. And today, at this critical juncture, people go astray right at this point. So many people today seeking to justify themselves, they make an appeal for themselves. They attempt to rescue themselves, to work for themselves. I remember talking to this young man and it was like a Twilight Zone episode. Everything I told him about grace, he would turn it into works. <laughs> it's just the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I told him, it's not about going to church. And you know what he'd tell me right after I get done 10 minutes explaining to him that going to church doesn't make you righteous with God? You know what he'd tell me? I'm going to start going to church. <laughs> it's not about praying, reading your Bible, hanging out with Christian people. He said, yeah, you know, I need to start reading my Bible and praying. I tell you, it was like Twilight Zone. It's like, no, you're not hearing me. I'll say it again. <laughs> you are saved by grace. Let Paul say it. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. This is the banner 
hanging over all of our lives right here. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. I don't set it aside. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. But God requires that Isaiah be perfect, be righteous, be holy. And he recognizes he does not belong in heaven. And so, as he sees the king, and as the text moves on, we see not only the righteous demands of the king, but we also see, brothers and sisters, the gracious provisions of the king. But you see, this is the step that you can't get wrong because people don't understand sin today. You know, people will take anything other than sin. Oh, well, I'm just a human. I'm just a person. Everyone's imperfect. And on and on these therapeutic lines of thinking go. And the more and more therapeutic we condition the gospel to the sinner, the less power it has to save. And therefore, what is needed is to firmly grasp the condemnation and the power of God to judge. A few weeks ago, we talked about philosophy, looking at Acts chapter 17, and we talked about the Stoics. Well, Acts 17 mentions the Stoics, and we were talking about this in apologetics this Friday, and talking about how, according to the Stoics, you know, there's no soul, there's no afterlife, there's nothing to be worried, there's no heaven, there's no hell, there are none of these realms coming judgment. I mean, we don't even have a category for that. There's no such thing. Therefore, there's no reason to be alarmed. There's no reason to panic. But you see, the gospel is diametrically opposed to Stoicism, and it's diametrically opposed to everything that you find today in the culture when the culture tries to tell you, just get a little religious. Just get a little spiritual. Don't worry about this whole hell and judgment. Do you know how many Christians on a weekly basis, when we do evangelism, tell us, don't talk about sin and judgment and hell? I mean, the dean of students came out recently and told me, I just wish you wouldn't tell these students that they're going to hell. It's like they want everything other, anything other than what the gospel says and what the gospel teaches regarding sin and judgment. But if you don't have the backdrop of sin, doesn't it feel like we're going through the Romans road here? If you don't have the backdrop of sin... You don't have the diamond of salvation. You don't have the jewel of the gospel. You don't have the beauty of the cross. You don't understand why Christ was cursed. You don't understand the curse. And therefore, you don't understand the beauty of the grace of God. In an unlikely imagery in this text, we have the gracious provisions of the king represented by the burning coals of the altar. Look with me, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So put yourself 
in Isaiah's shoes here for a second. From among the seraphim, who knows the number? Uh, commentators say it was just multitudes, innumerable numbers of these heavenly beings, as Revelation talks about, and they're just surrounding the throne. And then suddenly, out of the vision, one of these beings flies to Isaiah, <laughs> goes and addresses his condition. And it brings in his hand a precious stone, because that's all that the Hebrew word is. It is a burning stone, a burning coal. It's translated coal because it comes from the altar. And so there it comes from the fire. And from the fire indicates that something is burned. And so something from the fire comes to Isaiah. And Isaiah would have understood this perfectly. He wouldn't have needed an old lengthy interpretation about what this means. He understands as a Jew in the covenant, in the cultus of worship of Israel, he knows what the call is. He knows what the altar is. And he knows what the fire is for. But let's think about these living stones, these burning coals. Several gospel-centered observations can be made here. Number one, Notice that these stones of fire are brought to an unworthy creature. The seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hands. The cleansing that Isaiah will undergo is the cleansing that all people need. And it is a cleansing that is rooted in the gracious provision of the king of heaven. Second, notice that the cleansing stone is outside of Isaiah, meaning he did not provide it for himself. It is alien to him. It is foreign to Isaiah, and so is the righteousness of God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, because the coal represents the righteousness of God, as the theologians say, that is extranos, meaning it is outside of us. It is beyond us. It is something alien, foreign to us. That's why you can't provide it for yourself. That's why it doesn't come from your own effort, your own works, your own mind, your own heart, your own ingenuity. You can't produce it. A righteousness totally foreign to Isaiah, provided to Isaiah and applied to Isaiah by a mediator angel. This foreign righteousness, brothers and sisters, is the essence of the true gospel. Philippians chapter 3, the woe of Isaiah becomes the rubbish of Paul. All of this, all that is within him, all that he has done, all that is within his grasp is rubbish to produce the righteousness that he needs. And he says, whatever things were gained to me. Oh, homeschooling kids need this passage right here. No, seriously. Christian homeschooled kids. You, you know the type. You're like, yeah, I was one of those. Or yeah, I'm one of those right now. <laughs> Why do I say that? Because verses 1 through 6 is all about Paul, who was homeschooled. <laughs> in other words, he was raised Christian. He was raised in a religious house. 
All he knew, sun up to sundown, was religion, 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 religion. The commandments of God, being catechized, learning the law, going to Christian school, having Christian parents, Christian pedigree. That's all he knew. Day in, day out, 360 days out of the year, he was surrounded by Christian things, and he comes to the conclusion, it's all rubbish in terms of me producing this in my own power. In other words, as looking at that as the means by which I will be made right with God. He can't look to his Christian pedigree. He can't look to his Jewish ancestry. He cannot look to the rituals that he performs. You can come into the sanctuary, young people, and be raised by Christian parents and come into a Christian church and lift your hands up to Christian music and go straight to hell in the end. Unless the woe of Isaiah and the rubbish of Paul becomes your heart, your mind, your life. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. How do you get there? How do you count all that as loss? How do you have the proper perspective? He says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I'll break up with any girl for Christ Jesus, my Lord. I will lose any job for Christ Jesus, my Lord. I will forego any opportunity in this world for Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus said, no, 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 that's not far enough. You must hate your own life in this world if you would have Christ Jesus as your Lord. You see why this is the gospel that nobody wants? In a world that is drowning with entrepreneurial, self-centered, narcissistic humanism, where we are the measure of all things, where our, our world that we live in, you know what it does day in and day out, every commercial, all the time, nonstop, you can do it. You're wonderful. You're beautiful. You're good enough. You're strong enough. You know, uh, uh, take this pill and you'll be skinny enough. Eat this food and you'll be healthy enough. It's all about you and how you can achieve self-sufficiency, self-governance. It's a total idolatry of the self. And so that today, the modern, postmodern man hardly has the capacity to understand what Jesus meant when he said, deny yourself, hate yourself. Self. What do you mean, hate yourself? According to everything around me, it's all about me. Wow. It's amazing. Times have changed. Wasn't always that way. Wasn't always. That. Oh, it's always been, you know, a, a, a desire to sort of work and, you know, it's just kind of this, this natural, this nature, this sinful nature to try to justify yourself, understand that. But we have just put it into hyperdrive, the narcissistic spirit of the age. Fulfill yourself, satisfy yourself, make yourself happy, in, you know, uh, uh, um, fill yourself with material things, you know, just give yourself everything that you want, everything that you need. Technology has just 
made mush out of our brains. We want it now. Work now. Hurry up now. Give me the app now. Download it now. That wheel starts spinning for more than three seconds. Ugh. <laughs> That's why I um, read that article about the average American, because of technology, is now losing their patience in 15 seconds or, or less. We can't handle not having our way now. And yet, the Bible calls us to be selfless, to look out for the interests of others, not just your personal interests, to be last, not first. So Paul says, that whole worldview is rubbish. Compared to the value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of everything, I count them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Either the Bible is totally lying to you, that in sacrificing all of those things, you are gaining something superior, or the Bible is telling us the truth, and all of those things, all the things that we can pump into our lives and what makes up our identity outside of Christ, that all of those things, none of those things can come into a comparison with the supremacy, the greatness, the all-surpassing value of Jesus Christ. Only the gospel can give you that. Why? Oh, look at verse 9. It almost is like Isaiah is reading this now. To be found in him. Isn't that what Isaiah needs right now? Woe is me. I can't look to anybody. I looked at Israel. Everyone's filthy. I can't go anywhere. I have no power to approach the throne, no power to ask God for mercy or grace. I have no power to, do, to help my condition at all. And so all he can hope for is to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. But notice also, brothers and sisters here, backing up to the text in Isaiah, the third thing here, notice that not only is this an alien righteousness altogether outside of Isaiah, but this, notice also that Isaiah's cleansing is rooted in the altar it's rooted in the place of sacrifice. And, and, and there's a little bit of debate, debate here because of the presence of the burning coals and then the implication of some fire of some sort and the filling of the temple with smoke, whether this is talking about the altar of incense or whether this is talking about the, 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 the altar in the outer court, which would be the, 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 the altar where the burnt offering is made. Maybe is it both? Well, I take the latter. I think it's more akin to the burnt offering, the place where... Uh, a sacrifice was to be made. And here, think about it. This is the place that is so holy, not even the seraphim dare to approach the altar unaided by some sort of instrument. The tongs are necessary because taken, because it's almost like here we are, we're getting in a sense to the essence of it all. Notice Isaiah's never told what's on the altar. And neither are we, not here. Just hold on. I'm trying not to steal my own thunder here. But it's so holy 
This is the focal point of it all. This is where the seraphim go to remedy his condition, whatever is on the altar. And it's only through the utilization of the instrument of the tongues that they carry the precious stones from the altar and take it to the creature and apply its redemptive power to his sin. Oh, There is also here, brothers and sisters, a Christological archetypal reality. Write it down, circle it, understand what that means or come ask me later. But in other words, that Christ is at the center of it all, that he is kind of the original of it all. He is behind it all. Is it any wonder that the book of Hebrews speaks of a true tabernacle, of a true sacrifice, of an ultimate offering, even of an altar in the upper register? Hebrews 13. These are all heavenly realities, archetypal realities, and that is what forms the earthly pattern, the earthly replicas. This is why Leviticus can minister so deeply to you, because as you're reading about the earthly replicas, you know there's a heavenly reality behind it that will apply to me for all eternity. And so Leviticus is not in vain. The book of Numbers is not in vain. Deuteronomy is not in vain. We need those asundry laws to see the glory, the beauty, and the marvel of the work of Christ, our Redeemer. That's what it's all about. These earthly things both typify and they foreshadow the coming heavenly consummation of all of these things. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 9, because what happens throughout the course of this book is that Isaiah, in agreement with the book of Hebrews, will present to us that he, or what, or he, but it will be he who is on the altar is no is nothing less, no one less than the servant, the branch, the Messiah, the suffering servant who lays upon the altar for his people. And the fire from the altar being rooted in this Levitical code, for example, uh, just read Leviticus chapter 6, Leviticus chapter 9, you'll get all the background there. The fire that burns up the offering so that it can please God. Leviticus chapter 6, the fire that is to be burned continually, perpetually, never to go out so as not to disrupt the typology, not to disrupt the imagery, not to disrupt the objects of the faith of the people. You see? The fire, the altar, the burning stones, all of this is symbolic of life. The life that is given us through Jesus Christ. Even as the offering is burned, the smoke ascending. In Leviticus, God is concerned that the smoke ascends into heaven. Because it's as if the offering is being made, the burnt offering is being offered, and then as the ascending offering in the, represented by the smoke, it goes back up to God. It's as if Leviticus is saying whatever is offered, whatever dies on the altar is raised up again to heaven. What a perfect picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ who is a soothing, pleasing aroma to God on our behalf. 
The sacrifice is thus ordered toward heaven, the heavenly realm, to a higher life, to a higher world, eternal life, we could say, in the Spirit, and that is exactly what Jesus does. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 8, because the Spirit who is the architect of all of these things, He designs these things, and He speaks in these things. At least that's what Hebrews says. Hebrews 9, 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. That's an amazing statement. The Spirit is signifying this. This is signifying this of what? What's the antecedent? What's the context? The context, brothers and sisters, to our amazement, is the furniture of the temple, of the tabernacle. It is all the furnishings in there. Remember the boring furniture that you read about in Leviticus? Or numbers, right? Here it comes back again to the new covenant Christian. And what it's saying is this. The Holy Spirit is talking through that furniture. It's speaking that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is standing. And the outer tabernacle is a symbol of the present time. Do you comprehend what has come in Jesus Christ? The fulfillment of it all. What he says, the perfecting of the worshiper. Verse 10, it was, it was external things for a time until a time of reformation. No, no, not the Protestant reformation. <laughs> but the reformation meaning a new order, which is the new covenant. And once the new covenant comes, then the Spirit says, now you understand that a a way has been opened, the way has been made new and living by the blood of the Lamb so that you can enter in with boldness to the throne of grace. Oh, it's wonderful. There's one more layer to this. If you go back to Isaiah, let me read it for you. Not only is Isaiah here being ceremonially cleansed, He's being touched by God. But here it says, he touched my mouth with the coal. Behold, this has touched your lips. And I want to underline the word has. Meaning we are conveying reality here. It has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. I'm making a big deal out of that because, brothers and sisters, what this vision also gives us and what the gospel is all about is two things. Ready? The transfer of sin, the transfer of the sinner and, uh, excuse me, the transfer of the sin and the transformation of the sinner. Make sure I got that right. Because forgiveness has taken place and actual transfer has, has actually taken place. There's actually been an exchange Oh, this is so marvelous if you see it. In other words, by touching Isaiah, he places him in union with God, as it were. He has been ceremonially, covenantally, forensically cleansed and justified. His iniquity has been removed. What is iniquity? Breaking God's law. Why is the gospel such a pressing issue? Why can't sinners just wave it off with a bat of the hand, just bat it away? Because there's a a law there. I told you, you I love watching forensic shows. 
And, uh, you know, when cops are arrested, I love it. Anyway, I know it's probably bad, but I, I, I watch these shows, and I love when they get to the point where they go, please, officer, you don't understand. I mean, you know, I've been working. I'm taking care of my kids, and, you know, I'm trying to do right. And the cop says, sorry, sir. Sorry, ma'am. It is the law. You can't just bat it away. You can't just get out from under it. You can't just make excuses for it. It is the law, and the power of sin is the law. It, it makes sin exceedingly sinful. Paul says, I would not know sin except by the law. And therefore, the altar now begins to make sense, brothers and sisters, that at the altar, the reason why Isaiah focuses there is because a great exchange has happened for Isaiah. He has been exchanged for another. Something has been burned in his place. Something has died in his stead. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, or I can just read it to you. Because this altar in Isaiah is the altar of imputation. And this reminds us of the threefold imputation of the Bible. Namely, that the guilt of Adam, the sin of Adam, and his sin nature has been imputed to us all. People may not like it. Oh, you talk to unbelievers about the imputation of Adam's sin and they will loathe your religion. How dare God hold me accountable for something I did not do and then give me a sinful nature through Adam? How is that just? I can't, I give you a nick for every time I've heard that. People hate the imputation of Adam's sin, but if you don't understand the imputation of Adam's sin, you won't understand the imputation of Christ's sin, Christ's righteousness. The, the last Adam, the, la, the second and last Adam, his righteousness to your account. The two Adams go together. Not only is Adam's sin imputed to you, but also our sin is then imputed to Christ who laid on the altar. And then finally, because of Christ's righteousness, his well-pleasing obedience and his spotless, sinless, perfect nature offered to God, then his righteousness is imputed to us by grace through faith so that as Paul says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's exactly what Isaiah lacks. I'm unclean and the people are unclean. Where am I going to get someone who is, un, who is clean? Where am I going to get someone that's clean? You guys understand what I'm saying? Where am I going to go to find somebody that can make atonement for me? Where am I going to get someone who is not in the same exact position that I'm in? It has to be provided for you by the sovereign grace of God. Jesus, this is hard because it typically stretches our brain to the point of no return. <laughs> but, we have to go into the halls of eternity, as it were, where we can't even fathom, except for what's been revealed to us, where apparently, trying to wrap my brain around this for the last 25 years, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit made a pact. They made an agreement, a covenant, where the Son 
agreed, he covenant, covenanted. That, you make a verb out of that? Anyway, he covenanted. I will do it. I will lay down my life for Isaiah so he can go free, so that he can be clean, brothers and sisters, so that Isaiah can belong in heaven. He doesn't belong in heaven right now. And that's the problem with every sinner in the world. You don't belong in heaven. You're not worthy to be there. You're not fit. You don't have the moral and spiritual and covenantal standing before God to stand in his presence, and you cannot. And so an actual transfer has taken place where Isaiah, by virtue of the sovereign offering on the altar, the application of redemption upon his soul, can now say, I've been taken out of darkness and I've been put into light. Thanks be to God, Paul says, to the Father. He qualified us. That's the problem, isn't it? Isaiah is not qualified to be in the glory realm. But thanks be to the Father who qualifies us to share in an inheritance with the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us. There's the transfer. That's where I got my point for my sermon. He transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. And watch this, guys. Just like Isaiah 6, the forgiveness of sin. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Not only can you be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, but brothers and sisters, last point, I promise, and then, you know, we can go eat or whatever it is that we're supposed to do. There's also a radical transformation. Isaiah becomes clean. We'll see this more next week, Lord willing. He's not just transferred from one kingdom to the other. Death, life. Darkness, light. Heaven, hell, heaven. But he's also transformed. He's changed. And now he is able to please and serve and sacrifice for God. Now he is fit to say with his lips, I will go, send me. Can't say that up until this point right here. He has to be cleansed. He needs to undergo a metamorphosis of the spirit. He must be changed from within before he is to be used for the service of the king. I mean, this is elementary 101 Christianity, doctrine of sanctification. But what is going on here is that the prophet Isaiah, and here goes, just kind of, I'll probably upset you because I'll probably confuse you and then I'm just going to leave you hanging. But it's like Isaiah is undergoing an image restoration. Oh. He's being recreated, as it were, in the image of God. He's being restored back into the image of his God and righteousness and knowledge of the truth. He's being restored by the Spirit into the image of the Son. I mean, 
This is why reform theology, no, I'm serious now. This is why reform theology is so important. I, I don't know if, I don't want to offend, but this is why covenant theology is so important that there is one harmonious organic doctrine of salvation from beginning to end. It is not. Isaiah can save himself in the old covenant and then God saves us in the new covenant. People are walking around believing that today. Right, Ricky? I mean, we talked about it. Anyway, Ricky, but... It's one doctrine of salvation. It's one work. And here, uh, Isaiah is being made back into the image of God, transformed to the image of God. He's being sanctified. The freedom of the Spirit that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter three, uh, chapter 3, the freedom of the Spirit, the liberating Spirit. Now Isaiah, face to face with God, is being transformed into that glorious image that he beholds. This is how it works. Adam, made in the image of God, face to face with God, in the image of God. Of course, he loses that. He loses that standing in sin, okay? And then... Moses, back to the temple, back to the mountain, back in the glory, in the glory cloud. Literally, goes in the mountain, up the mountain, in the cloud, representative of the glory of God and the Spirit of God, and is what? Face to face with God. And because he's face to face with God, he comes down from the mountain and people are scared out of their mind because his face is glowing, man. They're like, Moses, you know your face is glowing? <laughs> Why is it glowing? Because he's face to face with the glory. And the Bible says through the new covenant and through the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, are you ready? It was too good for us. We go back to a face to face encounter. Even as Adam was face to face. Even as Moses was face to face, even as Isaiah was face to face, in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we are face to face with the glory and we are progressively being restored into that exact glory that we behold in Jesus Christ. Oh, when you go to heaven, that will not be the time for God to decide you're going to go to heaven or hell. You know that? And that's so comforting as a Christian that when you die as a Christian, it's not time for God to decide what to do with you. Whew. That has been decided at the cross. That has been decided. And for you, through conversion, that is settled by grace through faith. Isn't that wonderful? So that when we arrive, what does the Bible say? Absent from the body, face to face with God. Hallelujah. Father, we confess that like Moses and like Isaiah, we could never be face to face with you. We never behold your glory in your temple. We never stand amidst the cherubim and the seraphim and the angels. And yet, Lord, because of your gospel because of the good news that Jesus saves sinners. 
we can stand face to face with God. And for all eternity, Lord, we can behold the beauty and the marvel of your presence. And Lord, even now, the more we endeavor by the power of the Spirit to be conformed into the image of your Son, the more of the little bits and pieces of heaven that can fall down upon us and the seasons of mercy that we can experience as we are being transformed into the image of your Son. Oh God, give us more of these seasons of mercy so that we can bear your image, we can represent you. Like Isaiah, we can be useful for you, useful for the Master and for your work of creating a kingdom from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Set our sight on that, Lord. Remind us of our high calling, of our great privileged status, that we have an inheritance with the saints in light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.